families are not all in one place anymore, that they're all over the country. And there's typically one that's living close to their parent and the rest are spread out. And they want to help, but they don't know how to help. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that anyone at any age, right? So let's say you're getting some physical decline or whatever that looks like, um, that they can, and, and I'd love to hear about things that you may have seen firsthand, can they improve their quality of life? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of mindset matters. And, um, you know, how we think and believe really will impact, you know, as our thought life goes, it, it directs our brain, which directs our body. And uh, so I do believe there's, and there's scientific evidence to really show the power of our minds, our thought processes, our beliefs to really influence what happens um, to us. So that that positive mindset, but more than that, how we feel about growing older. And hmm. if you want a good book to read, Breaking the Age Code by Dr. Becca Levy. Okay. Um, and she's got research that shows the power of our our positive views and thoughts about growing older. And um, those that had a more positive uh, view of growing older and what it was like to be older, um, I want to say it's about seven years longer. And that's a quantity. Oh. But they're obviously experiencing better quality of life as well. So it's never too late to to start. And I think let's start with our thoughts. I think the other thing is, and you kind of alluded to when you said your mom needed some surgery. So don't ignore it and pass it off as, oh, it's just the aches and pains of growing older. Yeah. It was something that was repairable. And yeah. you said yourself, she's a different person because yeah. there you did take some proactive steps. And so I think oftentimes, once again, our beliefs say, well, she's just old. Everybody's got aches and pains and, you know, let's just ignore it. Or you've got indigestion with it. You must've eaten something wrong. And, you know, if it's a chronic kind of thing, it's just like, let's get it checked out. And there's always, you know, I'm a big fan of home health therapies, hmm. um, you know, Medicare, you have a home health benefit. If there's been a change in your medication, if there's been a change in your condition, if you've certainly been, um, if you've been in a, a nursing home or a hospital, um, a hospital for over three days, you could come home with some physical therapy just to really gain your mobility. We lose a lot when we are hospitalized. Mm. And certainly if you've had a, a rehab stay in a nursing home, kind of getting back and acclimated to your own home is really important. Um, I think medication mismanagement is another thing. When I would go into um, homes, when I was doing home care for years, that was one of the greatest precipitators, you know, taking the wrong medication at the wrong time, um, polypharmacy, getting too many medications oftentimes create adverse uh, effects and events. So I think, you know, just really talking to your doctor, do I, do I really need all of this? Um, because oftentimes they get added on and added on. And then you've got different specialists prescribing different things and who's really looking at what's happening. So I, I just think, once again, we're advocates. We've got to, you know, really believe 
that yes, you know, I believe um, quality of living can happen at any age. Um, let's first shift our beliefs a bit and believe that it's possible. And then it does require some uh, proactivity. So I want to talk a second about that medication management, because I believe that a lot of people can learn something about that. My own experience with my mom again, she went into the ER. She, we, she went three different times before we actually had, and this was during COVID, right? So it was very hard to see doctors. And, um, you know, they're finding like a something here, a something there, and they're giving her medicine for this and that and the other thing none of which were addressing the root cause of her problem, which was, I'm like, wait a minute, but she's got this big leg swelling, guys, and it keeps getting worse. And they're treating these other things. So fast forward to 2023, that was 2020. And I'm like, mom, we need to look at uh, your medicines because she was getting highly frustrated. She's like, oh, I, I said, why is your whole day scheduled around your medicines and what time you need to take what? She said, because I'm worried about counteraction, you know, things going against other things, creating other issues. So we went to her doctor who she had not seen in a couple of years and all the, you know, fairness, her, um, her GP that she was just emailing, right. And having virtual visits with not the doctor. And I'm like, we need to get a hold of this list. And sure enough, Susan, she'd been given things that, you know, we went through the process of eliminating just about everything, talk 80%, and I'm, it changed her life. She's on like two things, and she was on maybe eight. That, mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm just sitting here saying, why? So we tried different things, you know, to take her off of something, see if there was a reaction. We went on a plan with her doctor. Everything is great. She doesn't have a high blood pressure. She could come off some of the things around that. You know, it, it just went... She doesn't need blood thinners. She was on those. I'm like, right. And so um, it, it's just amazing how um, I guess because our healthcare is disconnected. We're so there's so many specialists. Um, she really needed me though to to kind of help her navigate through that. And when she went into the hospital and came out, I mean, it's not for naught because it, it, I ended up having a 12 page document of all the different things that were happening. Doctors loved it. Surgeons loved it. But there was no place else for them to access that. Right. Yeah, well, I will echo the, what I call the hyperfragmentation of mm. our system. And hey. the records aren't talking to one another and physicians aren't talking to one another. And it's overly specialized. And I'm not being critical of specialists. I, I'm appreciative right. of them. But at the end of the day, there's nobody that's really minding what's really happening and what are we prescribing for what? And oh, that might have a reaction. And it may be for a certain period of time. It's not for the rest of your life that you would need to be on it. And so there's not that many times when I did home care, that's what I would recommend is that I, I just think we need a nurse to come in and do some medication management and really kind of work with the physician to be able to get those medications um, reevaluated to see, do we still need this? Her blood pressure has been running really very, or actually low, and we haven't given any blood pressure medication. Does she really need it anymore? Mm -hmm. And so lots of different things happen. I think the other 
thing that uh, even at the end of life, I think of hospice, there was somebody I'll never forget. Um, I looked at all the medications that they were giving a person that was on hospice and something that is supposed to slow cognitive decline. And I'm like, I think it's okay if we, we were to get rid of that. We, well, no, the doctor said that uh, he would need this the rest of his life. And it's like, he's been given six months or less to live. I'm just not so sure that it's that important. And again, to the quality of life conversations. And so there are a host of things that get prescribed. Sometimes maybe it was just intended to be a short period. Other times for a certain thing that's cleared up. I mean, I I just think we've got to do a reevaluation of medication. When you have more than five medications, the chance of an adverse drug reaction goes up exponentially. So we've got to be mindful of that. And I guess the other thing that I would say is you're a great advocate. Having that, uh, all the, the notes that you took, I can see why doctors love that because that's, somebody's got to be making those observations. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's not the person who is growing older, who's feeling tired, weak, and experiencing some of these challenges. So to have a daughter or, or somebody that is going to step in and really help kind of quantify it, make those observations and, and record it so they can go to the doctor with them. You know, I know that it seems like it's a lot of effort, but once you get started, it's really not. And I'll tell you what, it ended up being a really good record for my mom who was going through it and said, I, I've never had anything like this before. She was actually able to reflect back and understand what was happening. And she deserves that, right? I mean, and so for me, going through it with her, it also allows me an opportunity to say, now what happened? And then I happen to have two sisters that live pretty far away. So I'm in Atlanta and I have one in Portland, Oregon and one in Alaska. So they can't run wow. out for everything. I know, I know. My mom has lived in all places, right? Depending on the age of the grandkids. So, you know, she's been able to um, work her career where she could be around her grandkids at the right age, which is great for her. But um, she's lived all of those, those places. But anyway, um, I had something for them too, which I think is great. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. And then if I do need them to pitch in and help, at least they know where they can, you know, where they can pitch in. So well, anyway. That's a, a good point because you represent families are not all in one place anymore, that they're yeah. all over the country. And there's typically one that's living close to their parent and the rest are spread out and they want to help, but they don't know how to help. But by having a record like that to say, well, this is what we're discovering. It, it's one way to at least keep them updated. And then they can kind of weigh in a little bit more, certainly with more knowledge um, as to what really is going on, not just what you think it is or what your mom might say as she's in a lot of pain in the moment. Yep. Okay. Now I want to shift our conversation and talk a little bit about when you're no longer able to live alone if and when that happens. So, you know, I think about my dad, right? I expect and I believe and I really am, am, you know, anticipating and hopeful that he can be in his home the rest of his life. I observe him, he's up in New York. I go every two months. He loves when I go, but we do have other family up there. He is not alone. 
but he is alone in his home. So, you know, I know that that's where he wants to be and we're doing everything we can. But what happens, let's say in the case of someone else, where suddenly maybe they can't drive any longer or they're in a situation where cognitively they may be perfect, but they just can't do all of the daily activities of life any longer, even though they've gone through physical therapy, let's say, you know, it's time to have the conversation. Um, you know, I know you talked about it through the pandemic. Yikes, there was a lot of stuff about nursing homes out there, and that made people even more concerned about going into any type of long care living. And, and I would argue that there's not enough um, evangelism of the concepts and even enough of a footprint out there for what you're doing. Correct. So how does the adult child begin to talk to the family about that? And then how do they understand what the options might be and like what's realistic? Well, you're really defining what I think is one of our greatest challenges and greatest needs. I really, I'm envisioning something that we need to have in our communities that is kind of a hub or a center that would be really much more of a resource center to support people living in their own homes and really to be able to help with some of the care coordination, the care management that you're talking about, as well as optimizing their health and wellness. And um, I, I am really, I'm talking to a lot of people about yeah. what do we need to do to make this happen? Because um, I believe there's much more we can do proactively. I think there, we need to have, we talked about it earlier, the age-friendly systems uh, age-friendly communities that really make it easier for people to navigate. What are the services? And every community is a bit different in terms of the services that might be available to a person who's living alone. Um, one of my greatest fears is social isolation. We just need people. Um, I think our it's one of the pillars in my perspective that really gives a person a reason to live is there's, there's somebody else that they're connected to. Um, you know, I don't know if there are pets, you know, sometimes, you know, pets can be um, not a substitute for a human, but I do think, you know, pets are helpful too. But I, you need to do a scan. Where can you find the resources? What, What's available in your community? What's available when you say he can't do perhaps all of his, his ADLs, his assistance of daily living, if he needs some support, just showering. And once he gets up and he takes a shower and he gets dressed and he's okay for the day, but he just needs that support. Well, there are home care agencies that um, typically it's a four hour minimum, um, but you know, do the research to kind of know what's on hand to kind of figure out what that looks like. Obviously, and we've been talking all about this, it's the conversation starts with the person and what's important to the person. And at what point, I, I remember uh, with my mother-in-law, we were bringing, she wanted to be in her home. And as she, she was progressing in her, um, she had vascular dementia, she had had a lot of mini strokes and such, and just not feeling safe for her to be at home. And so we were talking about bringing help in. She's, I don't want help in my house. I don't want a stranger in my home. 
Sounds like so, my father. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you you really need to understand that, respect that, and figure out what those options are. She was re- really resistive for a while. Um, it ended up, she finally said, okay, so overnight I, I will have somebody just because I do need help getting up at night to go to the bathroom. But what are the other assistive devices, um, occupational therapists to do a home evaluation to see what would they recommend to make it safe? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. physical therapists, occupational therapists, just to see um, we've had, you know, handrails in the shower, shower chairs, um, bedside commodes to support the at night um, going to the bathroom. So there are lots of things and, you know, what type of other chore services might be arranged and could it be somebody that, you know, there, there are certain services where they have that ability to kind of be somewhat of a companion in the process. Yeah. You're there to kind of clean up, but it's also, he really needs kind of somebody to talk to somebody to be with. This person has walks, uh, wants to walk their dog. So, you know, maybe you can kind of help support some of that and get them outside. So really kind of think about, you know, what type of, I'll use a clinical term, the care plan, but let's call it a quality of life plan. And, yeah. You know, really feel, uh, figure out what resources are available. Um, you know, sadly, most of the things I'm talking about come at a cost. Yeah. And uh, that's the unfortunate part. And this is where, Yes, I love home care, but it, it can be costly if you don't have the resources to pay privately. Um, yep. There's not a lot that's for long-term caregiving. You don't have a lot that's funded by Medicaid, unfortunately. So yep. you know, there are conversations we have a lot to, to do to go to get to where we need to be in society for sure. So I want to talk to you a minute about being creative around resources that are available. Um, I'll give an example again of my mom. And believe me, I've done a lot of wrong things with with my mom living with us, but a few things I've gotten right. And here's one. Um, so one of the things that I was, it was the most painful for her was not being able to drive any longer. I think that that piece of independence, I think that that was probably one of the worst things that we've experienced with her at this point in time. And she's not great behind the wheel. I mean, and she knows it, but it took her a long time to get there. And it's been hard. So my sisters, you know, we're, we're like good meaning kids, right? They're giving her gift certificates to Uber. She took one to the grocery store, you know, doesn't know the person that was embarrassed because the person didn't want to help her out of the car and she needed it, had to wait 20 minutes. She's like, I'm never doing that again. So um, I found, and I'm like, oh, in the meantime, though, I did find out that um, in the state of Georgia, and maybe it's a federal thing, but I, I found out in the state of Georgia that for seniors, it is available or elder care, but seniors, um, Getting these Uber rides, you can get 10 one ways a month for um, $10, 10 trips for $10. But that didn't didn't cut it either. I'm like, mom, these are the things I'm finding. So I went behind her back, right? And I went out to um, our community our community website, Nextdoor. And I think Nextdoor goes nationwide, I'm not sure. But I basically put something out there and I said, okay, here's my mom. And it's only within a certain radius of your community. 
here's what she's lost. She just wants to get out a couple times a week, right? She likes to go to the grocery store. She likes to go, you know, to Target and she likes thrifting. My mother at her age has an eBay store and she has a following. Wow. She really does. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really, really great what she does. Both my parents actually have really good that they work. And uh, anyway, she um, I did that. And my mom has someone exactly as you described. So this woman, I I got a few people back. I was super excited, including including one of my mother's friends from the dog park who said, I would come and bring Carol. I mean, I know we've got a house in Florida, but you know, whenever I'm in town, I'd bring her. She's never even expressed that. Okay. So I go to my mother with these options. And I'm like, mom, I don't know how happy you're going to be, but she's like, hmm, well, do you suppose that I could call them then and vet them? I said, absolutely. Right. Her independence. Absolutely. I just opened the door to see what was going to happen. So fast forward to now, um, Lucy would be the woman that picks up my mom. She's in her early 70s. She was a caretaker for her mother. She and my mom have become friends. She's retired. They go grocery shopping and Lucy goes shopping and my mom goes shopping. Lucy's gonna go to the uh, eye doctor with her or this appointment that's a long appointment. My mom's like, okay, I'd like to go to lunch with you, but I wanna buy you lunch because it gives her an extra sense of independence. So, it's it's turned out to be something okay you know and it was really hard getting her there you know even the first time that she went with her it's like i don't think i'm gonna like this mom just give it a chance well she went to go see her daughters you know on the west coast well yeah but give it a chance have two people in your back pocket she's like what is wrong with me this is an amazing opportunity and now you know like I said, a few months later, it's just that shift. But I, I would encourage people to be really creative, listen to what the most pain points are, and then just be really creative. Oh, and she's affordable, <laughs> by the way. God, that's awesome. And if that's a resource that is everywhere, I think that is powerful. That is an incredible story. And what I, I like is that you brought the resources to her and then she says, can I vet them? And you said, absolutely. And so she had that autonomy to be able to just say, yeah, this actually does work for me. And the other thing that struck me is that she was self-aware to know that, why am I resisting this? Yeah. And to have be able to have that conversation with you, I think is pretty powerful to kind of process. Why am I feeling like, eh, maybe not? So very nice. We're all learning. We're all learning through this process. Um, And I think that that's the important thing. So I'd like to get back to Greenhouse Project because I want to, I have some really important questions to ask you about. Um, The first one is when we think about, um, you talk about community and isolation and, you know, we don't have a lot of these greenhouses across the country yet, but like as a community, as a community, are there things that we can do? Like, what can we do as people that live in our community and say, hmm, there's gotta be another way, right? An alternative way. Um, And it would probably be interesting to, because I feel like I'm bashing the nursing home system right now. Uh, And I, I think it would be really wonderful. You opened my eyes to what the history of that looks like, like how 
it wasn't even, if I remember from our first conversation, how it wasn't even really an intentional thing, like how nursing homes even started. So we have come a long way in many cases, in some cases, maybe less, but, you know, I, I'd like you to kind of maybe just ground us, take a step back, ground us in like the evolution of nursing care, but then this, um, the importance of community and kind of segue into, are there things that people in their community can do to affect change? Sure. I, well, the history of nursing homes, you know, sadly, when I, I think about nursing homes, well, they, they have a very interesting history, but I would say in 1965, when Medicare and Medicaid became available, that's where you really saw the proliferation and the growth of nursing homes. And everybody was getting involved because now government was funding these places. Typically before then, they were, a lot of faith-based organizations were bringing in places for people in their um, parish to age, you know, as they grew older. So when government started funding everything, be, it was modeled after hospitals. And so very little variation um, all about efficiency. It was focused on, you know, the systems and getting everything done well. And we could put four in a room and, and more efficient, you know, and central bathing areas, central kitchens and that sort of thing for efficiency. I told you about restraints. I was a nurse when, um, before 1987, when the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, it was a nursing home reform measure. It was consumer outcry that said we're in the Institute of Medicine wrote this report and, and things, they said, we're going to reform it. And we need to see that a person can attain or maintain their highest practicable level of well-being. And they were really looking more, um, not just physical needs, but kind of the psychosocial needs. So that was 1987. Nothing has been done since then for reform. And when I think, so what did they do? They abolished restraints. We don't have restraints anymore, so I'm glad for that. You're penalized, but our environments are pitifully the same environments, largely. We haven't really, a lot of nursing homes I go in today were constructed in that boom that I was talking about from 65 to uh, probably 75 or so. There, there was a ton of them. They're still standing and they're still operating, and that's sad to me. And then you see what happened in COVID mm -hmm. and in 22, uh, 2022, the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine issued a 600 page report about the quality, poor quality in nursing homes, 600 pages. And they were talking about it was, you know, COVID happened and they said, whoa, we've got to um, do something differently. And so I, I would read what's happening. Um, you can go to the movingforwardcoalition.org. That is a group that I'm a part of. They're operationalizing the National Academy's report, saying we've got to bring change. So I would say, take a look at what they're asking them to do. The other thing that I would say is, it's time to let your congressmen know and women know what how you feel about this, that things have got to shift, things have got to change. There's one thing that gives me somewhat hope, the boomers are coming and the boomers stopped a war and the boomers are 
a group of people that can be activists and be those that are saying enough, we're not going to take it. We 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 expect um, that nursing homes should be dignified, humane approaches where people can live meaningful and purposeful lives. And uh, we owe it to our eldest among us. And so it's just part of what I believe we in a democratic nation should be able to vote with our feet and just vote into office those that are going to really call for the reform of nursing homes. So we're, um, you know, that's what you can do, I, I believe, you know, on the political level. And then, you know, just to go to your nursing home locally and talk to the folks there and ask them, are you aware <laughs> that there are some really innovative models that are out there? And have you thought about it and what would it take? And could we build a coalition? I mean, what are the barriers? Why would they not want to embrace something that would be much more innovative? And I don't want to paint all nursing homes are bad. There are right. heroes out there. And I want to be 100% clear. I mean, I was the nurse who was tying people up. I thought it was best practice. And I think those that are working in nursing homes, they're part of a broken system, a fragmented system. And they don't have those structures, that physical structure, or even the philosophical the education, the training that helps them to shift their beliefs to really value uh, the eldest among us. And again, there are good people out there, but I just, I'm really calling for education, for training. I'm really calling for our Congress people to be able to make changes that really value the seniors in our society. I think that's very well said. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, my my dad. I'll tell one more personal story. But my dad, um, his wife, my stepmom, she had early onset Alzheimer's. We're not even sure for how many years, right? We noticed erratic behavior many many years ago, and again, is it just old age, right? Oh goodness. Right. So he kept her at home as long as he absolutely possibly could, as long as feasibly possible. And, you know, he opted into, he did a lot of research, you know, I mean, he was really figuring out what his options were because he knew people who had parents or spouses or whomever in, in some kind of care. And he ended up opting for, and it, it was, um, he thought it was going to be temporary and it ended up not being temporary into a county, you know, like the Albany, I, I shouldn't name the well, I guess I can name it because it's got a good reputation from his perspective, Albany County Nursing Home. And he was nervous about that, right? He was looking at all these private homes, other places. And the word back to him was, it might not look as pretty, but the care is impeccable. Now, you know, very recently they went through a major um, uh, rent renovation. She didn't, she was there 10 years didn't make it, you know, through living much longer in that renovation, but her uh, dementia had had um, advanced a lot. But I'll tell you, there are private rooms with private bathrooms, shockingly enough, right, surprisingly enough. And, um, you know, they, they kind of changed the model. And I, I don't see that a lot, but I see that they 
are may have made that effort to do that and it's so it doesn't just like look better if you will you know there's community areas like you said um and the people there were were really amazing you know now my dad seven days a week without fail and if for some reason he didn't show up they were calling him on his cell phone because they were worried something happened to him mm. that's the kind of so i i would agree with you that you know we're not talking about all we're talking about just the industry as a whole and you know what correct what can be better right exactly so i want to talk about the big topic around affordability because that's a big hurdle when we uh you know when i did this conference and i'm talking to people boy that opened my eyes i'm going holy mackerel the cost of getting into some of these uh, facilities and, and getting into what would be more a home-like environment, I'll say, or even the apartments, right? I mean, I've heard everything from really six-figure down payments, very high monthly amounts, I'm going, holy mackerel, that's you know not a, a, a lot of a wiggle room out there for the average person, let alone they just, right. it's not even attainable. And so you talked about um, what I love. One of the things that it says on your on your site is you found it on the belief that everyone has the right uh, to age with dignity, no matter their financial situation. So what what I don't know is how do you solve for that? There are obviously so many costs involved when you look at a greenhouse project. I mean, look. Uh, you transparently, I, I would love to, I've been talking about it for over a year now internally and with people that I know, I'd love to have, you know, to start one in my own community. And I'm trying to think about, you know, what's the, the viability, the financial viability, um, like, you know, like, what does that all look like? How do you all make that happen? Yeah, that's the question we get an awful lot. And it's yeah. a very important question. Yeah. So you look at it and you think it, well, if a traditional nursing home that looks like this costs this much to live in, then living over here must be exponentially more. And so what I will tell you is that nursing homes have three payer sources primarily. Mm -hmm. um, it's a private pay payer. You've got Medicaid, which is income qualified. And then you've got Medicare, which is just for short term uh, rehabilitation needs. So when we work with an organization, you know, there are, are many things that will impact the organization's financial viability, where you're building, what you're building, how do you control the development cost, mm -hmm. the access to capital, we talked about the terms of financing, really, really important. But then you need to think about your operating cost and what will that payer mix be, the, the, the revenue that would be coming in. What can you charge on the private pay side to have someone come in? What's Medicaid reimbursement in your state? Mm -hmm. And each state is a little bit different. Some states are much better than other states. And how then do you build kind of a payer mix so that Medicare, which is a, a much better payer than Medicaid, so if we do some short-term rehab, then mm -hmm. we'll help to offset some of the lower costs that we're receiving from Medicaid and then private pay. Well, we need to have private pay in the mix so that we can achieve mm -hmm. that viability for the organization. One thing that we're really working on is we believe that Medicaid reimbursement rates should increase 
mm-hmm. you have private rooms and when you have a quality differentiator. And so if we've got research and data telling us, and, and I would assume that it would be ongoing metrics that they'd have to achieve the quality metric, you should get more in your Medicaid reimbursement rate so that we can incentivize the things that we think are important as we grow older. We should not just be creating places that if you've got the financial wherewithal to live in them, good for you. If you don't, then too bad. So we really work very hard to, the smaller the home, you know, the less you have to build out, that's each square foot cost. So we really work with architects and, um, and folks and designers to really make sure that we're not building the Taj Mahal, but we're really thinking about smaller is better and what do we need? Not that we're gonna compromise hmm. on on quality, but we want to make sure that we're very thoughtful about what we're putting into it and just making sure the things that are most important, the private rooms, the private baths, access to outside, those types of things are prioritized. What I would love to understand, because this is what I believe, right? Mm-hmm. I believe that when you have a situation like that, and we can talk about, you can you can talk firsthand about psychological changes that happen when people are in an environment like that, a home environment. And I would think in the end that it would save on massive medical costs, right? So put a little bit here to save a lot there. One would think, one would think. Well, we've got research that backs up what you just said, <laughs> that we actually save the um, the system dollars um, that from a Medicare perspective, um, we will save the system. So length of stay, how long somebody is in for a rehabilitative stay mm-hmm. decreases when you're in a greenhouse home because you're in a home yep. and you're able to have therapists come to that home there to take care of you. So and the sooner they can get you back, and if we they can get you back to your own home, and you're not going back into the hospital because the rehab wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. And so we have found rehospitalization rates are lower. So yes, we have shown that, you know, doing it this way does save the system dollars, which is why the bump in the Medicaid reimbursement seems yeah. to be justified because at the end of the day, it's saving the system dollars. So we should be writing our Congress people. We should be getting yes. in our communities. I'm even thinking about um, in my own community, the city council, which is very accessible, just saying, you know, guys, how can we help advocate around, you know, around yes. here where I live? We're notorious for having, you know, very beautiful uh, senior living facilities, but they're unattainable for most people from a cost perspective, and I do know that. So I am going to, those are great takeaways. Now I'm gonna ask you a few personal things because I see you as, you know, this, um, I respect you, by the way, very much. And I, I just mm-hmm. look to you and I aspire to be someone like you in, in the clarity of your purpose and your mission and tying it together with what you do every day. And I see you taking care of a lot of people. So I'd love for you to talk to our listeners here about how you learn to take care of yourself. Well, certainly I can tell you that for me, so you're asking me on a day that I start started my Zoom calls at eight o'clock and I will finish <laughs> at six o'clock tonight. 
So yes, I'm driven. Let's be clear. I am driven to do what I do. I am fueled by the work that I do. And there's a certain energy that comes from being connected to your purpose. So I will offer that. That having been said, the other thing, I don't start a day without I have a meditative practice. And I really just kind of center myself and really just um, I have a practice of gratitude. I have a gratitude journal and uh, really just embrace. I have a little thing on my arm that says grateful. And, you know, every time I look down, I think about just take a moment to be grateful and to be, you know, fully present in the moment. Um, those are little things that I can interject in my day all the time. But I can tell you any chance I can get to go outside and to hike. And you, you brought up Alaska and you reminded me when I, we, I've been to Alaska seven times in ah. conjunction with our greenhouse project. But when I went, I thought I'm going to tack some days on because mm-hmm. if I'm here at this beautiful place, I'm going to experience the joy of being in Alaska. So I really try to interject those moments into my travel and into the work that I do. I want to get to know the people, the culture. It not only helps me have an appreciation for a different culture, but it helps me to have an appreciation for where a greenhouse home would be sitting within a context of that culture and community. So I do that. I love hiking. I just a couple weekends ago, I was able to go to Southern Maryland where my sister has a beautiful place right on the water and just spend a weekend there and doing some things on the water, boating and different things. So I'll get outside any chance I can. And yeah. yeah, And seize the day, those spontaneous things, a bird feeders outside my office that I can watch when I'm on a zoom call, I'll look up and and that's the birds. So yeah, those are the things that keep me going. Okay. So I wish you lived in my neighborhood because I love those same things too. Awesome. Hiking buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about um I, I don't remember the name of the one book, the aging book. We talked about the code. What was the name of it? Breaking the Age Code by Breaking Becca. the Age Code. Yes. Okay. You mentioned that book. You mentioned Atul Gwande's book, Being Mortal. Um, I'm going to ask you, do you have any other favorite books or your current go-to? So I'll just tell you the one I just finished. And um, the author of the book uh, was our keynote speaker at our conference. Dr. Stephen Treziak wrote a book called The Wonder Drug. And it really is the power of love and compassion. And to our care systems, he's actually um, an intensivist. He works in the ICU at mm. Cooper Medical University Hospital. And he he received a standing ovation for his conversation. The research that backs up the power of giving to others and you know what we get as we give when we're giving uh, to others. Compassion is different from empathy it is empathy plus action equals compassion and really powerful book and such an interesting lens to look at that through the lens of research. And I appreciated the research that has gone into it. It's not just an art of loving and being compassion, 
compassionate, but there's also a science to it, a science backing. So, and, and the wonder drug is for anybody, not just for healthcare practitioners. So I would encourage everybody to read that. Okay, I'm gonna order that book because I love to read. So how do you want people to think about you? So you walk in a room, right? You know, you know your purpose and it's clear. What do you want people to know about you and remember about you? A couple things, I guess I would say. It was interesting when I was uh, with my sister, we went to visit my dad and we were going through some old photo albums and different things. And there was a newspaper clipping that he had clipped from when I opened a, a nursing home as a director of nursing. And my sister was reading it. She says, oh, my gosh, because they were quoting me in the article. She said, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> and she said, the things that you wanted for the elders that would be moving into your nursing home back then, she says, those are the same things that you talk about all the time for greenhouse homes. And she says, wow, you're the same. And you've been working on this your entire career. And... Yesterday, I was on a call. It was a Gray Panthers-sponsored uh, webinar. And I said to them two words, leadership and legacy. Hmm. And I said, I've been a nurse for decades, and I hope that my legacy that I leave is what the, the role of a leader and the power for leaders to embrace the moment and to, to seize the opportunities that are there to really make a difference within their sphere of influence. And I've been grateful for the sphere of influence that I've had um, over my tenure. And I just hope that I can say that I made elder care a bit better because I was a part of it. That's a wonderful note. Um, and I, I, wish, I wish we had more time and that we could keep talking because this has been a, a wonderful conversation. And I know people will learn so much from it, Susan. So let's uh, talk about how people can connect with you. And I, I also want them to know about, you have a podcast called Elevate Elder Care. And I love it. I just subscribed to it today. So transform. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm listening. But how can people connect with you? Certainly, um, I hope they'll listen to the podcast. And one yep episode that I'm going to have all your listen, listeners listen to. It was by Dr. Andrea Grindrod, and she uh, teaches on palliative care. And mm. there's so many conversations. Um, it, it's one of the most powerful podcasts that I have listened to. And the one that will launch next week is about a lovely woman and her 80-year-old mom who hiked in France. So you'll love it as a hiker. Oh, yeah. Camino de Santiago. It's a, it's a beautiful, the Pilgrim way. And she and her 80 year old mom hiked eight miles a day for four days. So wow. it is, it's fascinating. They're from the UK. So you'll love listening to their accents. Andrea yeah. is from Australia and you'll love her accent. So yes, my podcast and then our website, www.thegreenhouseproject.org. And you can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm there as well. So would love to connect with everybody. That's great. Susan Ryan, CEO of The Greenhouse Project. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. And uh, I hope one day you'll be back. I hope so too. Thanks so much, Michelle, for having me. 
Hey, it's Michelle. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy our podcast and know someone who you believe would make a great guest, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let's talk. I'd love to hear your feedback. And as always, may it inspire you in your own personal and professional journey of life. Whoa.